Welcome back to the Fried Egg Podcast and part two of the Bill Core interview. If you missed part one, check it out on our website, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thank you to all the listeners who submitted questions. While I couldn't get through all of them, I tried to touch on the vast majority throughout the conversation. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to our channel on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here's part two of our conversation with Bill Coor. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Yeah. It has it's just a made up 
Don't, it's a psychological test. Well, it's, it's like when we did all that work at Pioneers Number Two a few years ago, and mm-hmm. Mike Davis at USGA, you know, Mike summed it up perfectly because there was this discussion going on about changing, uh, you know, prior to the 2014 opens there. The uh, fourth hole had been a par five, and the fifth hole was a par four, probably the hardest par four in the world. And Mike Davis' idea was, let's make the fourth hole a really long four because the entrance to the green is such so much more receptive from a really long four. And the green on number five is so severe, let's build a new tee for five way back and, and play five as a par five. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this went against things that had happened there in previous U.S. Opens. It was, it was quite an internal controversy. Yeah. But Mike summed it up perfectly. He, he said, I promise you, he said, all the players in the championship look at this at nine. Yes. These two holes together, four, five, it doesn't matter, it's five, four, four, five, they're counting. If they walk off here with nine on their scorecard for the two holes, they're happy. They're going on. He said, so however you want to think of it, it's nine. And he was absolutely right. Then, one, one, two at Riviera, 14, 15 at Sand Hills. I mean, yeah. they're all over the place. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look back, people say, well, they worked that way for the, you know, the previous opens there, number two. Well, they, in, when Ross completely redid the course for the 36 PGA Championship, they were both par fives. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's all relative according to time and place. So, outside of uh, Old Town Pinehurst, which you've gotten to do restorations of, what site or what course that you've restored has been that course that, like, the, the longer you spend on it, the greater appreciation you have for it? Uh, I don't think there is one, Andy. I mean, it's you know, not only have we been extremely fortunate with regard to sites to work with for new courses. We've we've been very fortunate to work in some really neat old courses, and. Um, I'm not going to sit here and start to uh, give you a rundown of those courses because it sounds horribly self-serving. But we've worked with some truly, truly special golf courses in in this country. And it's it's much like earlier conversation when you go to one of them. You go, wow, this is unbelievable. This is fantastic. And And then you go to another one. Wow, this is equally good. And so, what you try to do, or at least I think what we try to do, is appreciate each one for what it is, and try to understand each one for what it is and what it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is that how you approach the restoration work? Is is you know not just putting everything back, but discovering the intention of yeah, what? Absolutely, mm-hmm. you're trying to take yourself out of the picture. And you're trying to, to to do the work in such a way that if the person who, or people who did it 
in the beginning came back, you know, they might just nod in approval. I mean, when we worked at number two, you know, the course in Pinehurst, it was a huge change, huge change, both visually and how the course played. And, and uh, all Ben I could do, Toby Cobb, all of us who were working out there, we just go, we just hoped that Mr. Ross, if he came back, you know, not that he's going to applaud, but at least he would be in approval. That this is this is as close as we know how to get to what our sense is he must have intended. And, uh, you know, the same thing in other places that we've worked. You, you don't go there to leave your signature. You go there to try to recapture something that was. It's mm-hmm. that. The restoration, I'm excited to see more and more come because there's so many places that if you could get it back to that original feel, you know, from where it's gone, it, it would uh, it, it, make golf a lot better in a lot of places. Yeah. Well, it can be extremely difficult. It can be extremely political. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, again, I mean, just since we're talking about pioneers, but you, you think about when we, Ben, uh, first went there and Don Pageant, who was the president of Pinehurst, and Bob Dedman, the owner, they just said, we would like you to restore this golf course. And I remember the first question we had, restore it to what? This thing has changed its character so much through all these decades. Well, restore it to what? Yeah. Which Pinehurst number two do you want to go back to? Mm-hmm. And in the case of Pinehurst, it, it was possible to do, to restore to the most what was perceived to be Pioneer's number two at its very best. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some places you simply could not do that anymore. And not you know, not just because maybe they've been, now there are thousands upon thousands of trees, but sometimes there are houses, there, there are different, there's different infrastructure, there's different, just Technology. so many things that have changed that, you know, that it's just simply not possible to put it back. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about the pro game and how it gets very, you know, hit it straight, hit it close and narrow. And this year they'll have the Byron Nelson at Trinity Forest. Um, what are you? I mean, what are you expecting from from that tournament? I mean, it's going to be a lot different right, than the typical tour course for the most part. But you know. I, do you think do you think the feedback from players can be positive? I think it will be extremely mixed. I think it's going to be all the way across the spectrum. I think there'll be some players who will very quickly appreciate it and, and uh, uh, like it. I think there will be some who very quickly will very much not like it, and uh, it's just different. Yeah. Andy, it's different. It's different for Texas. It's different for the tour. It's a different presentation. And uh, anything, anytime something is different, there's, you know, it's certainly open to a vast array of interpretations as to whether that difference is good or not, not good. So um, uh, all we can say is we've done our best to present it in a way that we 
we think would be interesting, you know, for those players, the world's best players, as well as the members and the people who play there. We try to create a golf course that gives a lot of options for them to make their own decisions as what's going to happen. There's Trinity Forest. I think the very longest players on tour can go there. It's not like we've said you can't hit your driver as far as you want. You know, by the same token, I think we believe that given the firm conditions that we hope will appear during the turn of the turf, that not that there are any short players on the tour anymore, mm-hmm. but it could be a situation very likely that the longest player in the field could go there and think, I can win here. And the shortest player in the field could go and say, I can win here. And everything in between. So it, it's going to allow a lot of um, choices to be made by players as to how they want to play, how far down the fairways. You know, the fairways are wide by the tour standards, are extremely wide, and, and they they can choose to play it however they wish. I don't think you will hear, sometimes you hear comments like, well, it's whoever putts best that week, you know, or it's a putter's golf course. I don't think you'll hear that. I think it's, uh, it's going to be more a matter of the, there are times there that that to be successful, you may have to play a different approach to to the greens than they might normally play. It's not a it's not a point A to B to C golf it, course. It'll be interesting. So many people are based around stati- statistics now on tour, and the strokes game method is like, oh, if you're in fairway this far away. You know, you've gained this many, but I think playing very good architectural courses of modern and anywhere, any good architecture, you can be in the middle of the fairway and be in one of the worst places. Yeah. And and that to me is gonna be the really riveting thing is that the right play might be to hit it way right with an iron off the tee versus hitting a driver up to forty yards. And that from forty yards you might have the worst spot of all of them. Yeah. It, it, it will be very interesting uh, to see Andy and uh, Casey Cock, the superintendent there, who's got the, the turf, the old one, which is the closest thing to Zoysia in terms of, uh, to Zoysia, I mean, closest thing to fescue mm-hmm. in terms of playing characteristics, how the ball chases once it's on the ground and your ability to putt from off the greens. Um, it, this this is the closest thing to fescue I've seen, and Casey's got it really keen. And if it's if the weather is good, the wind blows a little. Hopefully not too much yeah. because it's totally exposed. But wind blows a little, and uh, and it's dry. Um, and again, that's a very big if yeah. because May in Dallas, Texas, is historically I think the wet, just a horrible month for weather. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it goes. But it, <laughs> I think some of us have been like me. I think there was an event a couple of years ago in May in Texas that like they, the whole course was flooded, so they converted yeah. a four into a three. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm done. It's, it's it's a tough time of year there. So, but if the weather's cooperative, and uh, I, I think it will be, it'll be very interesting to see. But it's 
it's you're going to get a lot of mixed reviews. We by no means think everybody's going to go after it. Oh, this is fabulous. We love this. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna take some time. I mean, it's it's a uh, the the uh, fifth hole there, a little short part four, goes slightly uphill. There's a big bunker out there on the right, short of the green, probably twenty five yards. So short of the green, and then the green is tiny, tiny little little. Steve Green sitting there, no bunkers around it, but it's just perched way up, crowned off severely like a Pinehurst Green. Shortcut grass in front of it, right of it, behind it, left of it. And, you know, I'm sure people would go look and say, well, this is going to be a piece of cake for these guys because they can drive this green. It may be 305 yards, maybe. And, but the key to that hole is that big bunker is hopefully positioned just properly to the point that all the players on tour I think can hit over Mm -hmm. the thing is hitting over it's not the primary objective for those guys it's hitting over it but not going over the green yeah so to get a ball to for them to whale one over there over the bunker easy now they're going to go over the green. And if you go over the green, I don't care who you are, Houdini is going to have a hard time getting up and down and maybe getting up and down, in, you know, in three from back over the green. It's just all mode, fairway, it's tight. But now you're trying to get the ball up on this tiny little hubcap thing up there. And if you're not careful, you'll have a John Daly experience are up there and back up there and back and playing ping pong exactly <laughs> and so the key thought process would be how do I get over the bunker but barely yeah. just barely over so when I hit that ground that's just over it carries me up onto the green not over mm-hmm. and so that's the type of stuff and you'll see that kind of different presentation not just that but presentations throughout the course that those are the kind of decisions they'll have to make. And I think I think some will embrace that and some perhaps won't. You know, I was I was there actually this past Tuesday for a golf writer outing and one of the Texas golf writers was telling me that he had spoken to Jordan Smith not long ago and said Jordan you know, Jordan plays out there. It's basically become his home course and his teacher. Cameron McCormick has teaches out there, so you might want to bet on Jordan, <laughs> you know, go May. He, he knows that course better than anybody. But he said Jordan was was talking to him and saying, you know, the course just gives you a lot of options. You just have to make a lot of decisions. And a lot of times those decisions go really well. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> and and uh, according to the golf writer, Speed told him, he says, I've played out there. I've shot six under par on this course. He said, I've also shot six over. Mm-hmm. You know, so to us, see, that's interesting golf when yeah. one of the world's best players says, I have to think about where I'm going to play. Like, you know, yeah. maybe I'm a head driver on all of them. Maybe I'm a head driver on some, maybe not. They, it's a process of them learning how they want to go about yeah. negotiating the course. And then, of course, if you have different wind conditions, 
different way, different pins, holds yeah. it completely different with right. a different pin. Right. So that's the interest in the game. I don't. I don't know, but uh, uh, yeah, it'll it'll be. I, it's, I, I'm saying it's like my Super Bowl. It's gonna be. This is the event I'm most excited about in 2018. Uh, let's get to this. Uh, I got a bunch of listener questions, and we'll get a couple of these. And you don't want to take up too much of your time. Jason Way wants to know what do you wish the average golfer understood better about architecture? Um, probably how the ground influences play and how the 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 detail work that goes into the creation of the golf courses is there to help you in many ways as opposed not it's you know the perception is there architects go lay out course and they create all these hazards to try to challenge you well that's true to an extent because without challenge golf loses its interest much like you said earlier about playing tennis straight down the middle of the court but Really interesting courses allow you to succeed. They give you a challenge and they present a situation, but they allow you to succeed. And oftentimes it's the way the tilt of the ground is or the way the green sits against a certain slope or, or is, is angled. It's, it's often the small things. It's, we all want to notice the giant features, the big magnificent earthworks and that sort of thing. But the detail is the things I think we notice so much, Andy. It's so important. It's a, you know, a contour that's six, eight inches high in a green, in a spine that runs down the green, can dictate play all the way back to the tee if the hole presents itself in a certain way, allowing you to play to the right of the fairway, left of the fairway, or whatever. If you can tell where the pin is, oh, it's on the right of that little spine, it's on the left, oh, man, I've got to play over here, over there. And those are the type things we we find so interesting. I think spines are so cool, too, because good players miss right and left. They don't miss numbers. Yeah, it's true. So a spine all of a sudden to the right and left of the pin that you could hit a shot to 15 feet and have a really tough little pine. There are so many holes around the world <clears throat> that you look at that the play is dictated by a single feature, generally, most or so often at a green. Fourth green at the old course at St. Andrews, a little knob. A little mound that sits out there just short of the fourth green. You just, that, particularly for good players. Well, it just, it starts like, as soon as we hit a tee shot, we go, oh man, we'll have to deal with that thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just those, it's that type of thing, you know. And I think the better the player is, the more they're influenced by small things mm-hmm. rather than large things, because it can be the biggest bunker in the world. Most good players aren't worried about sitting over, mm-hmm. you know, or if there's enough room to the side, they can avoid it. But uh, it's it's the smaller things. It's, yeah. it's one of the one of the things I've I've learned so much from Ben through all the years is how little things do affect the best players in the world. You know, a certain tilt of the ground 
in combination with a certain wind angle can make things easier or more complicated, more difficult for a good player. So it's, it's often the little things that are as important as the big. And I think, I think so often people look at golf courses and focus on the big picture and sometimes miss the detail. Yeah, so it's the, it's the little things that, right? it's, a, it's like what we talked about before about, you know, the difference between the, you know, the, what people were trying to mimic die with, but they missed the little details yeah. inside of it. You Pete, know, it might look the same. Exactly. Pete was a master at making small elements work mm-hmm. and influence play. And sometimes those will get lost, I think, in the picture that was presented. Um, so we'll go to Joe Estes with a little bit of history. It's A.W. Tillinghast's great-grandson. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he wanted to ask, uh, you've built so many great courses. What are you still learning at your most recent projects and that you didn't know before? Like, you know. Oh, Joe. It's, uh, first of all, Joe, I'd have to say my partner, Ben Crenshaw, is such a huge fan of your great grandfather. <laughs> he, if you ask Ben, you know, what his favorite architects are, I mean, Perry Maxwell's going to be up there because Ben grew up on the Perry Maxwell golf course, too. Mm-hmm. So he and I are both going to be in agreement with that. But he will almost immediately go, they never tell him. And, and so, and which is, from my perspective, completely understandable. And probably from the perspective of building golf courses that, that can strategically and interestingly challenge the very best players in the world, even today on courses that were built many decades ago, I would have to think he would be at the absolute top. It is amazing to look at this. His, his course director yeah. and how yeah. he stood the test. That whole Philly school. Oh, it's incredible. Thick. It's just it's just incredible. But I guess to your question, um, you know, it seemed like there was a cliche or something once said that when you when you quit learning, you're dead or something to that effect. I, I don't know, but yeah, I think each one of our each one of our projects. I think we learn from what we've done and and then observing what we've done. We obviously learn from what other people have done. There's no question you, you have to do that. But even in our small little realm, we, we observe what we've done. We observe when it worked, when things worked, when they didn't, and how do we try to pre- get interesting presentations of interesting sites but do it in such a way we minimize the things that don't work and maximize the things that we've learned that that do. So I I don't know that I can give you an absolute example of that other than it becomes cumulative. Mm -hmm. And and the whole thing becomes uh, cumulative in the sense that so many decisions when you're creating a golf course, so many decisions become pure judgment calls. Mm-hmm. You can try to base them on statistics, and you can try to do this and that and the other, but the difference in the very best architecture 
and some of the very worst is not that far removed. And you want to walk down the line and you want to make it as interesting as it can be and and at the same time not cross over the line and somehow you just fall into goofiness. Mm-hmm. And that may sound weird, but it's, it can be a pretty fine line to walk. I mean, if you look at the... You look at the greens at Wingfoot, let's say. Yeah. And there you go. Mr. Tilling has a pretty damn good idea of what was going to work and what wasn't. And yet it's on the line, man. It's walking on that line. And so you go, if you, you know, we often look at stuff, whether it's like there or in Oakmont, and, and going, could we ever build these greens? First of all, I don't think, I think Ben would agree with me. I don't think either of us think that we're, we're, we're so proud of the, of the guys that we work with. We're prejudiced. We happen to think they're the best. Yeah. But at the same time, when you see things like the contours of the greens at Oakmont or you go to Wingfoot and you, you just you, you just see things. Somerset Hills. Mm-hmm. You go look at the greens at you know, Somerset Hills and you go, are you kidding me? Who thought of this? How did he think of this? Mm-hmm. And it works. And yet, you could easily try to mimic some of that. Those contours within green, within putting surfaces, and fail miserably. Yeah. And then be tearing them all up and redoing them within a year. So it's uh, those judgment calls. How do you how do you make them? And how do you approximate the best that's ever been done? in terms of creativity and still making it work. It's, it is a fine line. I, uh, um, Jared Kleiner, who used to work at Sandal, had a question along the same lines that kind of led, leads perfectly into it. If you could redo any hole or stretch of holes uh, at your courses, would you do it? And if you would, where would it be? Well, we have done it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we have done it. Uh, good to hear from you, Jared. Too. <laughs> oh, balls well. I haven't talked to you in a while. So uh, <laughs> I like Jared a lot. He's very talented, very talented guy. Um, you know, <clears throat> again, we do the best we know how to do with each given site and each given mm-hmm. opportunity to to build a course. Um, that doesn't mean we get it right. We try, mm-hmm. but we're very much aware, and particularly on some sites that are pretty severe, that um, you think something's, you know, you, you put the first presentation out there and think this is the best we know how to do on this, and then you watch it, and you watch people play it over a period of time. And uh, then if if, if you believe, you sincerely believe, you can refine something or make something better, make it more playable or make it more interesting for more than just one class of golfer. Mm-hmm. You don't just look and say, how do we make this tougher for the college players or the tour players or something? How could we do something? Could we do something here that would influence, make this more interesting for the members or the resort players or the guests or, or the best players in the world 
us, whatever. Can we can we do this? Can we accomplish that and make it more interesting? That's when you make a move. And or when something just simply um, you know, just think, well, we we did the best we could at the time mm-hmm. and now hindsight being proverbial twenty twenty, we probably should have done something a little different. We've been fortunate in not having a huge number of those situations but I was just Dave Axon and I were just at East Hampton Golf Club uh, just a month ago and the little the little drop shot par 3 hole there the 17th um, it was number 8 when we originally did it they switched the nines with a little downhill just pitch little pitch down the hill mm-hmm. to a plateau green uh, par 3 the green was that we built is simply too severe for the green speeds they maintained and too and for you know, it just didn't it just didn't didn't work well. Did it work? Yes, it worked. The members seem to have embraced it. Yeah. For years, for years now I've been tra- I've been talking to the folks at East Hampton about could we just go soften those contours? We can maintain the relationship. So it's not like the 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 green's gonna look dramatically different or anything. It just can we we can just make it a little more pinnable and playable and, and just a little more fun. And uh, I kid the, the guys, folks at East Hampton and they were they were very happy with it the way it was. But this year, enough sand had built up from the bunker, you know, coming out yeah. of the bunkers around the rim of the green, and it had started to really constrict some things. They said, we, we should probably fix this. So at the same time, we softened the contours a little bit, and then they just reseeded the green away we go. So Most people probably didn't even notice. Well, they won't, they won't see it until next season, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's still got, you know, it's got the little upper left shelf and a little kind of middle upper thing in the back center and a little dippy thing in the front pin. And, and so it, uh, but we, yes, we, we studied these things and we're, we by no means believe that our first attempt at anything is going to be the way it should absolutely be. That's, yeah, it's a good way to look at everything in life. I think, I think, Andy, the thing for us is we love to maintain connection mm-hmm. with the courses that we've done and then watch how they progress. And sometimes, you know, there can be some outcry against some element of the golf course. And we resist saying, okay, let's go change that. Let's see how it goes for a while. Because sometimes something, particularly if it's something different, may not be the most positively received, but over a period of time it becomes appreciated. And so we like to give it time. And then if we maintain the, you know, the, the connection with the course and we all we get together with the owners or the members or the, 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 the bodies may be that, you know, that Take care of the on the course. Take care of the course, and we say, okay, could we could we do something here that might make it a little more interesting, a little more playable, or whatever the case may be. So, uh, the courses we like, and you're the ones that we do the best we know how to do, mm-hmm. and yet 
we're probably aware they haven't reached their potential because that potential needs to be gained through stewardship and management over a period of time and seeing how they play and then seeing things that they need some alterations, big or small, to get closer and closer to their potential. So we, um, we like seeing the courses that progress, maybe not dramatically, but quietly upward. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, so many courses go the wrong way over time. It's really great to see it go the right way over time. Yeah, it is. Um, I got this question from a couple youngsters, uh, various ages, but advice for young people who want to become architects who have studied the concepts but, you know, what's, what would be your advice for a 19 or 17-year-old that, you know, at this point in their life wants to become a golf course architect? Well, my first advice is have a plan B, a serious plan B. Um, I guess it's easy for me sitting here at this point in my life, but... I remember Pete Dial those years ago when we mentioned earlier about him lying on the bed watching the <laughs> Dolphins game. And I said something about it. I'd, I'd like to, you know, I'd kind of like to say, this is done. I might want to be a golf course architect. And I remember he just flippantly, Pat, you know, said, odds oh, on becoming a golf course architect about the same as being struck by lightning. You know, he just, and then he was right back to me. TV. Anyway, that's not the most encouraging advice, <laughs> but it's not that far off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, and particularly in today's economic world, and uh, it's it's not that it can't happen. If you have a dream to do that, I would I would say choose every possible avenue to pursue that dream, and and yet make sure there is a serious plan B backup. I would say that to people who are, who are looking at golf architecture. I would absolutely say it to people who think they're, they're going to play golf for a living. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great players out there. You better have plan B. And so, now, having said that, I would study golf courses as much as I possibly could see as many different ones as they could. I would not necessarily just fall in line and say, oh, this is, here's so-and-so's ranking of courses. This, this has got to be really good. It's in the top, whatever. Go make your own judgments. See enough different things to decide yourself. Do I like this? And if you do, why? Do I not like this? Why? Don't make those judgments on how you played that day if you played. Make them upon why don't you like it or why do you like it? Have to have to put up a, a reasonable defense of your position. Mm-hmm. And by you know, you may see a golf course that's not on anyone's ranking of anything and think it's better than maybe the one that's the highest rank on any ranking you see. That's okay. That has merit, that idea of thinking, I appreciate this course more. Just get to the point you understand why you appreciate it 
And then if you if you got put in a position to defend it, how would you defend it? So beyond that, I would also say if you're able to do it, if your uh, financial situation is such, or if you can survive on extraordinary and minimal finances and that sort of thing, you don't have a family you're responsible for, then go get engaged in the, in the business of building these things. Start at the ground. Mm-hmm. Starting at the ground is not fun, but start, if you have to, as a labor with a, a, a maintenance crew on a golf course, then a construction crew. Find out how these things get built and then interact, if possible, with the people who are making the decisions as to how they're being built and then, if possible, with people who are making decisions how they're being designed and just get engaged in, in the process. I mean, if, if you can learn how to do that and, and get a sense of what actually occurs, because we all have the theory, we can all study the books, and we can all come up with the talking point. But when push comes to shove, as they say, how do you get it done? Mm-hmm. And you can talk about risk and reward, and you can talk about all the strategy you can talk. You can talk about all these things all you want to. You make the most beautiful sketches with how you get it done on the ground. That's a whole other thing. And I remember Pete telling me many years ago, too, so one thing you'd have to learn, you've got to understand how to talk to the guy on the machine. That's another cutting through to the most simplistic way of saying communicate. You've got to understand. If you're expecting something to happen in terms of contour, how do you get that message through? And if you know how to do it yourself, if you're physically capable of running a piece of equipment and creating something yourself, it's uh, it's a huge advantage. Because even if you're struggling to communicate to somebody else, you can show an example. This is what we're talking about. This is... This is how and you start to build those relationships with the people who are making it happen. And, uh, and it works the other way because when they realize you, first of all, have been willing to do that, and secondly, understand a bit of what they're going to, that respect and appreciation is going to increase dramatically. And the communication is going to be much, much better. So I've, I've said to our guys, you know, we've got guys that have worked with us for years who go off and do their own designs and they're just doing some absolutely beautiful stuff but they're able to do it mm-hmm. because they're also, not only they can think about the design, the theory the strategy, the risk work they're able to get it done on the ground mm-hmm. so particularly at some of these lower budget golf courses which they're all, they're going to be more and more of those as time goes by but when that, those courses if you have the ability to literally create your ideas yourself on the ground mm-hmm. you have a huge head start because then the lower budget situations of well I get this guy he designed it but he can also make it happen and work with the guys now years ago that was very difficult to do because you were either a designer or you were a builder constructor or a builder or something so the design bill thing back many years ago was you know I'll say it wasn't looked upon so favorably but 
It's absolutely the way of the future. Fascinating. I say that all the time. Yeah. I also say if you find these young, like especially any municipality that's looking to do anything, should and you don't have a budget that's that big, like get somebody that's a uber talented, but B can do all the work. And it's absolutely right, Andy. I mean. You know, two of the guys who work with us, Keith Reb and Riley Jones, what they did at Winter Park, a little nine-hole course down there in Far Egypt, they did the most beautiful job. And it was a situation there simply was not a budget. If they'd hired a, quote, name designer or something, there was their whole budget. Mm-hmm. Or if they, you know, if they if they didn't, they'd have a, you know, a contractor after a business. And I, believe me, I'm very... I have great admiration for golf course builders. They, just, they do fabulous work. But there's sometimes you just got to have a little bit of both mm-hmm. in, in, uh, to make it happen. And there's a prime example. And uh, Dave Axon and Dan Proctor, who worked with us, and they went out there to Wild Horse yeah. in Gothenburg, Nebraska, in a tiny little town, in the, you know, on the edges of the sand hills there in Nebraska. And, they built us this 18-hole golf course. It must have been 15 years ago or so. It's still considered one of the best public golf courses in America. And less than 50 bucks a point. Yes, and I think I think it may be considered the the best, very low price point golf course in America. That's and it's because they worked with contractor and they worked with construction people doing it. But they designed it and helped build it themselves yeah. with the with you know the assistance of the golf course contractor. What do you think about the logic of it? <clears throat> you hire an architect who hires a contractor. Two businesses are making a profit off of it. If you hire an architect that builds, one business is made. Like you know, like everybody's making a profit. Yeah. You know, like you wouldn't be in business like in. in but you're taking one and then also the communication, the, the whole idea is there's one less person in, you know, how much easier is it for you to make a decision than it is for you and your wife to make a decision? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the simplest terms. Well, fortunately, we're pretty good about that. So <laughs> it's not that big a difference for you. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I understand completely what you're saying. It's, I mean, uh, so. Yeah, it's, um, but so uh, we do this overrated, underrated segment. So I give you, this is the last thing we're, we're doing. I give you a topic and you have to overrate or underrate. There's no properly rated. So um, we're going to start with Ben Crenshaw's putting. I would say it's underrated. I mean, I've watched Ben now for, he and I have been business partners for, it's going to be 32 years next month. It's just incredible. It's hard to believe. But, you know, I've watched Ben from the time he was absolutely one of the very best players in the world and um, probably recognized as the best putter in the world. Mm-hmm. And to today, where he, by his own admission, would not calling himself one of the better players in 
in Austin probably versus much less in the world. So, and, and, and yet, even to this day, his ability to roll a golf ball on a putting surface is just a thing to behold. He just, it's, he does it time after time. You just the ability to, to, to visualize a line and get the proper speed and then to get the ball to just roll over and over toward the hole and almost invariably will end up either touching the hole or being extremely close to it. And you see it so often, you just take it for granted. It just, you know, we were talking some earlier about people who are truly extraordinary at what they do, make it look so easy, even you believe you can do it. Yeah. And so I've looked at this for years and I go, oh, I can do that. Well, it doesn't quite work out that way. You know, and so I, I've, I don't know that Ben would agree with this, but through years, Ben has extraordinary eyesight, even to this day. Mm-hmm. And I, I truly believe that that is a part of his. He can see the, the movement of grass and things on putting surfaces in a way that I've never seen anyone else. And, he, you know, I, I truly believe that's part of it. He, and, of course, his incredible touch his ability to uh, to just roll a ball on the proper line at the proper speed and it's uh, so as as much as he's been touted as being one of the world's if not the world's best putters I think his reputation is under state I bet, I bet that putters uh, cost you a few matches over the years <laughs> Uh, fortunately, Ben, I don't play for anything other than fun. So, it's, uh, yeah, I can't. I mean, we just start off. It's a given who's going to win. So, it's uh, we go from there. <laughs> so there's nothing worse than playing against a guy that went anywhere within 25 feet. You're just utterly terrified that the ball's going to go. Yeah, almost expecting. It 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 looks like almost everyone's going to go along. Yeah. Uh, Overrated, underrated, blind approach shots. Overrated meaning they're they're perceived as yeah as bad. Yeah, oh. just in, just in general, you know, are they? I, I guess go with the the public perception as your basis. Well, the public perception, I think, would be that that's a that's a negative. Yeah. Even blind approach shots. Uh, I personally believe, and I think Ben agrees with this, that uh, uh, in the, in certain situations, you can't have anything more fascinating mm-hmm. than a blind approach over the hill and get to the top of the hill and look down there and see where did it go. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, the, if the contours allow you to play certain shots, then maybe you get the ball... You know, perhaps near the hole, even on a blind shot. Uh, I think it's. I think those are extremely interesting situations. Now you don't want to just overdo it. Yeah. You know, it's variety. It's variety. So if you, from our perspective, if we're laying out a hole and the second shot is over the hill to a green, you don't see it. We will very, very seldom knock down the hill to where you can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 200 yards and longer par threes overrated or underrated 
Um, I think there was there was a time, uh, Andy, that uh, uh, again I'm a little struggling with the overrated and underrated, but <laughs> I'd be more is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, it, it's we've built a lot of long par threes. Mm-hmm. I guess partly because Ben and I both grew up on courses that had a you know, usually one really long par three. There was a there was a belief. You read the old golf architecture books. That there was a belief that 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 was a part of the game. Your ability to play a wood mm-hmm. shot into a par three in order to exhibit that skill, the accuracy as well as the distance into a, you know into a par three was was a significant part of the game. Um, I think it's harder to do these days because the, the distance the ball goes and everything. You, you know, it used to be a, a 215 or 20 yard hole was just extraordinarily long, and, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a wood shot. Yeah, you know, and now it's a seven, six, seven iron. Uh, yeah, and so we go really. So are we going to build 280 yard par threes? We're going to build 300 yard par threes. That's when I think it starts to get, I, I start to question. So I think the, the change in the distance the ball goes has changed that equation dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was reading down one, I think it was down Ross's book, um, and he, there was a quote that was like, the skill, the truest test of skill is the long iron game. Yeah. And it's so sad that now there are no long irons. It's not it's driving a wedge. Yeah. For all these, I saw Dustin Johnson the long. He had one iron shot into par four longer than a seven iron last year. Yeah. One. Yeah. The whole year. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm not. I'm actually not surprised. I mean, it was. You know, you were talking about the Warren course in Notre Dame. I was up there. About three weeks ago, I guess, <clears throat> and uh, uh, we were doing a few little bunker tweaks and things for the senior open, and <clears throat> and they were playing a collegiate tournament there that day, and there were some good good teams there, but it wasn't like the best college teams in America, and yet I was just fascinated watching some of these. Young guys, I mean, it just one after another, after another, after another. They were hitting the ball. I, I happen to know how far they were hitting because we've been measuring to some of these bunkers and you'd have to stand there and wait from the hit. We weren't working that particular day, but had to wait for them. And so just measuring to everything. They were hitting the ball 295 to 305 in the air. Yeah. In the air. And you go, and then some of them beyond. But it was like, really? Really? That's So when you do that, how long do you have to make the, the hole to not have a seven there? Yeah. It's unsustainable. And then yeah. the problem is, is that the distance advantage has gotten so high for the great players, and it hasn't really gotten, the, you know, the, it hasn't equally moved for the regular player. Yeah, absolutely. It's the biggest problem. Absolutely. One of the golf writers called me late last year about Trendy Forest. And 
He said, Bill, so they're going to play the, the buyer announcer there next year. I mean, in 18. And uh, he said, so what have you and Ben done to combat the huge advantages of the players have today with distance? And I know the man thought I was just being, maybe he thought I was being disrespectful. I don't know, I wasn't. But I just said, well, in general, we've made the course shorter and wider. And there's just this pause on your head. Finally, he what? He said, I said, I don't mean that the sound probably is, you know, probably the way it probably came across. I said, but it's true. I said, we haven't worried about length. We haven't tried to make the holes. I said, first of all, it's 100, on 140 acres, trimmed for it. only it's on a landfill. You can't drop off the sides of the landfill. You just, you're confined. You can't make the holes. You just can't make them any longer. So we weren't out there trying to say, how do we make this longer and longer and longer? He was like, we're going to make fairways wide enough to have to choose a line. Yeah. Choose the wrong line. The longest players better choose a proper line or yeah. they'll go through the fairway into something they might not like. So they have to choose the lines. And then, so we're adding width. Mm-hmm. And then even a little bit short, a lot of holes. Because generally speaking, the guys the guys seem to struggle the most with distance control. Yeah. It's not, can you hit it far enough over something? Yeah. Almost yeah. everybody can do that. Can you hit it precisely enough? Someplace and with the contours of the greens being such that you need to land your ball properly, either short of a contour or over a contour or that sort of thing. If the, if the turf is firm, then we feel like that's 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 what we're doing. It also provides interest for the members and their guests. But yeah, we're we're not out. First of all, we don't really do tournament courses, but. We do courses that sometimes they play tournaments on, and uh, so we'll see. As, it reminds me of the eighth hole at Sandhills. I think the pin was right above the uh, the bunker, so Lions Mouth Green mm. for those that short par four. And I hit a drive the first time around of the day, right down the middle, smoked. I hit like thirty yards, in it, and I stood there and I was like, oh. I'm in the very worst spot. Mm. <laughs> so you absolutely 30 yards right down the middle. And then the next time around, I made sure to hit it as far left, or I, I went left, as far left as I could with the driver so I could have the angle in. Yeah. And that's going to be the fascinating thing about watching it. It's going to be a completely different style of golf. Mm. Um, so last overrated, underrated. Get you, out, get, get you out of here. I gotta get home tonight. Yeah. Uh, Pebble Beach. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know, uh, Andy. I, I'm a huge admirer of Pebble Beach. I, I don't. Do I think it's the best golf course I've ever seen in the world? No. Mm-hmm. Is it extremely interesting? Yes. Is it extremely uh, inspiring? Yes. Uh, I guess in that case, I would almost have to look at an individual ranking mm-hmm. and say, I think it's overrated or underrated mm-hmm. to see. But just to just pick it in general out there, I I don't know. Or the I don't know what the rating is either. 
other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would say generally it's probably underrated. Underrated. That's a lot of great golf balls. Yeah. I mean, yeah. This is it's sad. It's sad. I always uh, I think about that. Place. You see the old photos of that place. Yeah. That's yeah. what I know. It's it's uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, am I partial to Cypress Point? Yes. You know, this, but that doesn't mean that I don't think Pebble Beach is not extraordinary. What about Positivo? I've never seen Positivo. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've never seen it, so I have no, yeah. I have no, I've seen photographs of it, you know, early on and then later after Jim Urbina and Tom Dope you know, worked there. I, uh, <clears throat> I was there last week, and it's the latest corpses, you know, just stuck in my head. Yeah. That's one of the yeah. most, it's a real, most yeah. recent. I can't imagine it's not really good since Mackenzie lived there. It's, it's a, the background is something else. And, you know, you look at that and it's, they have 40,000 rounds a year. So there's certain things there that, and I think this is always something that gets lost is that certain places can't be what other places are. And right. it doesn't mean that they're worse. No. It just means that this is the situation. But if you took that club, that course and it was a 10,000 round exclusive club and you could, I mean, it would be out of this world. Yeah. But it is so good. Everybody, I mean, I, I love the model that they have there too yeah. um, in terms of blood. But yeah, enough of me. You gotta go see Constantine Club. Yeah. At some point. It's got to be in the bucket yeah, At some point. But uh, thank you so much for the time. This was... You're welcome, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Thanks for enduring the brutal cult today. That, that was And an for walking around the part three course. That was fun. That was an enduring cult. Yeah. That, was, that was fun. Yeah. So, so, thanks again. Okay. Very well. Until next time. <laughs>